Welcome to the Billy Moore Podcast, and today's special guest is Ray Bishop. Ray, the author of Outlaw? Yep, author of Outlaw, Virgin Books. How are you doing? Not too bad, Bill. Thank you for coming on. So, Ray, we've known each other for a good few years now. Yeah, lovely to see you, Bill, and I see you looking so well after all you've been through, mate. It's, you know, it's inspired me, it really has. I know about your uh, cancer and everything you went through in Thailand and that, and I see you... So you're absolutely flying now. It's just warms my heart. It's lovely. Brilliant. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself so the guests get to know who you are. Well, I, I, I always say this, you know, I've done a few podcasts before. First and foremost, I'm a great reformist. and I, I don't do this because I want to be a name or a celebrity. I don't view myself as uh, the press sometimes labelled me ex-gangster, prolific robber, all these sort of titles. Uh, and as you know, the title of my book, Outlaw, and the subheader is How I Become Britain's Most Wanted Man. Because I lived that life, Bill, as you know. You know, I was involved in crime from a young age, spent 16 and a half years of my life behind bars. No winners in that, Bill. But I had to reach a place in myself where I actively sought a better life, redemption. That is something I've gone on to achieve. And the message that I like to carry is one of, no matter how far down the scale you've gone, change is possible. You can change your life and turn all the negatives into positives, no matter what you've been through. And what, and I always say this as well, what you've put people through, mm. you know, you can change, you can change and make sense of it all, you know. So where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in South East London, a place called Woolwich which was like, uh, I wouldn't call it a posh part of London. You know, I don't want to slate my area. It's my roots. I'm proud of Woolwich. Some of the best people in the world come from there, in, in my humble view, because of obviously growing up there. But it was council estate. It was hard times. You know, I'm a child of the early 70s, and uh, none of us really had a lot built. It was just a collection, really, of of different housing estates all next door to each other, basically. That was... That was the area I grew up in. And I was home life. I was family. As good as it could be in that era, bearing yeah. in mind we didn't have a lot. You know, my dad sadly was an alcoholic drinker. Uh, so my mum suffered as a result of that. There was not a lot to go around even. And uh, my mum done the best she could to bring us up. And uh, I had a stepfather who my mum's still with today. It was a lovely man who'd done the best he could for us. You know, we was five children, five children. And uh, and, he, and he took on use with your mum? He did, yeah. My mum was an Irish immigrant. My, main, my mother came here in the late 60s from Ireland. My mum was 16 years old, Bill, when she came here. Yeah. And uh, in a short period of years, my mum had five children, you know, and she was in a foreign land. She had no friends. Uh, you know, it must have been so fucking difficult for my mum. I certainly don't blame, I know they say we're products of our environment, but I've come to a place in my life where I don't play the blame game or the blame for I don't blame my mum or my stepfather for the way I turned out, for the way I turned out, because my siblings didn't, you know, my siblings didn't. Tell us all your sayings out. Well, I would say from about the age of 15, 16, Bill, if I'm to be truly, brutally honest. Be brutal, lad. Come on, get through with it. I felt like, I, like I'd like i been dropped from a spaceship, Bill. I, I felt like a lost fucking child. 
And the only place I found any sort of solace, any connection with any other human being was on the streets. It was on the streets, on the estate, with the other delinquents like myself. Again, I don't blame anyone for the bad choices I made, but at that age, I knew no better. It was the norm. So getting involved in petty crime and things at the age of 15, uh, cannabis use, drinking, you know, to me it was all a bit of fucking excitement that I craved and you know the rest, you know? So how did you get like labelled Britain's most wanted man? Well, Tell us that story and then we'll touch on other things. Well, what happened, Bill, is um, when we were young, we were like prolific offenders. You know, I don't say this from a place of ego or anything like that. My past is something that, that you know, I carry guilt and shame from my past, but I use it to my advantage today in trying to mentor and help others and carry a message of, of, of hope, hopefully. But I got involved in serious crime at a young age, you know. I'm not proud to say it. I was involved in violent crime armed robbery, uh, burglaries. I've been arrested for an aggravated burglary on a, on a not commercial, uh, not domestic. We was, we had some morality as young rogues, young villains. We didn't rob off our own. We didn't burgle people's asses and things like that, but we robbed big supermarkets and, and whatever else. And um, the way I got labeled Britain's most wanted man is um, I'd progressed in the criminal world and I got involved in organized crime and I was arrested in France for uh, being knowingly concerned with a people smuggling operation. This was in 1999, before the advent of open borders, etc. And uh, the, the crew that I was working with was working with uh, people from the Eastern Bloc, like Russia, some of the breakaway states, and, and I got done for being knowingly concerned with smuggling 30 people into the UK. I was arrested in France, illegally deported to Great Britain, basically, kidnapped by British Customs. I was arrested in France. I should have been tried in France. British Customs came over to Coquel under the, the guise of uh, interpretation and to make sure that I was fit enough to be interviewed, as was their protocol. They put me in a van with the premise that they were driving me to a hospital in Calais to be physically checked to make sure I was all okay. They drove me over into what's called the UK control zone in Coquel. And once I was there, they said, you're now under arrest for crimes against the UK deported me to Great Britain. You know, I was pissed off, to say the least, because I knew in France at the time, I was so immersed in that world, I knew that I would only get two or three years in France. It was not viewed as seriously as it is here. Uh, so I was remanded in custody. I went to Canterbury Prison. And while I was in Canterbury Prison, I plotted this, uh, I wanted to get out, I wanted to escape for a multitude of reasons. You know, I was pissed off with the people that I'd gone to work with. I felt like I'd been fitted up and used, which I basically had, which is, as you know, which is what we really do in the criminal world. Most of the time we're being used and abused and we don't even know it. And um, I made up a, um, uh, I got a big pen. I filled it with blackcurrant jam and I put a paper clip in the end so it looked like a, a hypodermic syringe. When they took me from prison that day, and they brought me up into the dock of the court. I grabbed hold of one of the prison officers, put it to his neck, and forced him to open the, forced the other one to open the door under the guise that I was going to inject him. So obviously they panicked. He's opened the door, and, and I escaped. 
So the, the Britain's Most Wanted Man, yes, for a bit. I mean, that was quite a sensational claim and it was more virgin <laughs> yeah. in the book. I mean, yeah. I don't want to come across like a Raoul Moe or a Kenny Noyan. I don't profess to be. Yeah. But at the time, that's what I was labelled. You know, on the news, I was, uh, do not approach this man and in all the newspapers. And it wasn't a nice experience, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't nice. And this was back in 19... 19- that was in 2000, that was. 2000. Yeah, that was 2000. Just at the beginning of 2000, I got nicked on the cusp of 99, 2000, and I'd been away for about six weeks. And how long was you on the run? Uh, nearly, f- I think, do you know what, Bill? I think it was about three or four months. I can't yeah. be 100%, but it was, a, it, was, it was a while. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have this big pot of money. I didn't... F- fuck off to the Costa Brava or anything like you. Some people got some of these big major league villains because I wasn't a major league villain. Mm. I thought I was, but the reality of it was I'd gone from being this frightened little child, scared of his own fucking ghost to all of a sudden being involved with some serious fucking firms on the continent, you know, mm. that, that, that make a lot of the people I'd interacted with criminally up until that point look like, look like little little sweet puppies you know these were dangerous fucking people bill you know and once you was involved and in the mix you know yourself you've lived the life it's very hard to pull away and get out of especially when you're committed mm. so how, how did you evade capture for three between for three and four months well i had some help obviously people i won't name Someone who's uh, this is the podcast that doesn't mention any names. <laughs> I, I, I won't mention any names. You know, it's, this is about me. It's not about them. But one oh. of them's a particular. Um, he was a major player from our area, and he he had a, he knew a girl who had an empty vacant flat in Lewisham, which wasn't that far from where I grew up and lived anyway. But yeah. he basically gave me that flat, so I had a flat out of the area. And being the genius criminal that I am, Bill. I stole a pair of glasses out of Specsavers because I thought if it works for Clark Kent, mm. then it should work for me, you know, and that was the sum extent of my evading capture. Yeah, <laughs> a pair of Clark Kent glasses and a phone box. <laughs> well, you've also, like myself, you've also suffered with, with addiction. I have, and, yeah. and And your demons have resurfaced many times, like myself. Many times. Tell us a little bit about that, please, Dave. Well... I, I put the, the crime and criminality and stuff like that hand in glove with, with, with substance abuse at, at the time. I mean, I had, a, I, I had a bad cocaine problem. Now, the thing is, when you're committing the sort of crimes I was committing, I like to think of them as desperate acts. You know, at the time, you, you, you know, I thought, oh, we're organised, we're a little firm here, we're game, we're going out. We could go out and do, do, do a, an armed robbery or whatever else. No thought or regard for the victims. Utterly selfish. But what was fueling that desire? What was fueling it? It wasn't always. It wasn't always about the money. It was about the dysfunctionalism that you you, you don't know you're seeking, and the, the the cocaine use fueled me, and and it turned me into a fucking monster, Bill. Mental health problems and everything else, and you become more and more desperate, and the lengths you're willing to go to to get drugs or to just be in that it just becomes pitiful and desperate in mm. in my humble opinion and in my experience you know it just became pitiful and desperate and all the bars that i said i would never do i ended up doing you know basically uh, you know and, I, and and uh destroyed me destroyed me emotionally physically and most importantly spiritually spiritually and how long was you in like the grip of addiction 
Well, I, I was, I had periods, you know, I had periods where I, I was fortunate enough that I found recovery over 25 years ago. Mm. So in a 25 year period, most of that I was in recovery. So I would have little spates where I might have two years of cocaine use and uh, crimes or whatever. And then what would usually happen, Bill, is I was such a master criminal, I'd always get arrested, you know, I, 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 and I'd end up in fucking jail. And when I was in jail, it would be like a totally different ray. I would have a total reprieve. I wouldn't use drugs in jail. I would clean up. I would get back into my fitness and physical well-being and everything. But the thing that was missing is I'd done very little for my spirit. As you know yourself, you can, it's, a, it's an inside job. Yeah. You can make you can have a nice pair of trainers. You can have muscles and whatever else, and that won't keep you from going back to that life. And and that was what was always missing, you know. Yeah. So you you had you had that that hole that you needed to fill that vacuum. And it was always, you know, like it's 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 a big one, and it would always like say, you know, side of ourselves. Oh yeah, most definitely. Yeah, and I, you, you think know. these things will fix you, yeah. but believe you me, they don't. Because no. I've had periods in my life when I've had no money, and I've had periods in my life when I've had lots of money. Doesn't fill that hole. Doesn't fill that hole. So your new book, right, which is getting yep. re-released yep. in the spring, is it? It's in the spring, Virgin. It's entitled Outlaw. That's yeah. my basically my autobiography, my life story. Yeah. You've also, you've also wrote a second book, which is... I have, which is called The Smuggler's Roulette. Yeah. That Brilliant. should be coming out soon after. Brilliant. Fingers crossed. And that's about the three years I spent in the smuggling world out in Spain and France. Because I always knew when I wrote Outlaw that I would have to tell the story. And again, my, both my books are... I mean, you read them, you take them as they are. They're not giving it the big I am books. You know, I don't claim to be anything special, Bill. Just yeah. someone that made a lot of bad choices in life and paid some heavy fucking prices. But I've paid my dues to society and I give back to society today. And my book is a redemptive book. And it, it re I hope it reaches people. And in my experience, it has. Because when it was first released... I used to get messages from people saying, this has really changed my life. I've really inspired by this. I had one message from someone who was in a segregation unit in prison. Now I've done a lot of segregation for my behaviors in the past. And he said to me, he felt like killing himself. And when he read my book, he said, he thought, you know what, I've got some hope. Yeah. And, and I thought, wow, wow. You know, what a privilege that is. Well, that's incredible, uh, an, an achievement on its own. And you can, uh, you can read someone who's in segregation through words that you put on into a book. And you know what, out there. if you'd have said to me, you know, I'll take that over any money or any royalties or anything I make out of, a, out of the book. Because my intention is when this book does get re-released, as you know, I'm an advocate of the uh, uh, charity Change Your Life, Put Down Your Knife. I intend to donate large swathes of the proceeds to that organisation to make a difference. It's not about me. It's not about the money or anything like that, Bill. It's about... Is that something that's close to your heart, you know, like knife crime? and 100%. 100%. It, it kills me that what we have in society today, Bill, is kids killing fucking kids. And it's become like a cultural thing and uh, it's heartbreaking. You know, we were little fuckers, as you know, and I'm, and I'm sure you were growing up in Liverpool, you know, no different. <laughs> but to see how society is becoming now, and it's almost like, it doesn't make the news. The other day in my home area, Bill, a 15-year-old boy on the way home from school was stabbed to death in front of his younger sister. What justification, what reason, what insanity. 
What warrants that? Yeah. He's poor, I mean, poor child, poor parents. His younger sister's going to carry that for the rest of her life. You know, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, so heartbreaking. it's something close to your heart, isn't it? I think it's close to everyone, so, everyone's heart. Tell us a little bit about what's, what's in, in Outlaw. What, what are people ex- to expect well, to read? I've been told my story well, is very gripping and like your good self. A lot of people said, wow, this should be a film. You know, it, it's because I'm very open and very honest and very emotive, Bill. I just laid everything bare and said, take it as take it as it is. It's all factual. It's all correct. Uh, love me or hate me. Don't give a fuck. You can shoot the messenger, but you can never shoot the message. And what I tried to encapsulate in the book was the, the how I got into crime, yeah. the dysfunctionalism that... that and the progression or degression, as I say, down to hardened crime, drug addiction, where it took me, and then to try and end the book with some hope to show that change is possible. And in my own experience, the proof is in the pudding. I'm a great believer in this. Don't tell me, show me. You know, I, it, crime and criminality and drugs and everything took me to a place, you know, segregation units, one psychiatrist pen away from Broadmoor in a mm. maximum security prison. That's where it took me. Today, being a successful businessman, a mentor to others, you know, I do quite a bit for charity, although I'm not one of these who, who shouts from the rooftops. You know, I'm involved in boxing clubs. I sponsor some boxing clubs for kids and, and whatever else. And, you know, it's... Well, you've had a career in boxing as well, haven't you? I have, yeah. I mean, I still train at the mighty... Kettles and and Bruce's gym with likes of Rory Crawford and Alan Kettle, which uh, and special thanks to them for allowing us to use the yeah, gym today. Thanks. Of course, number one fight gym in the south. But uh, I still train. I had a, a quite an unlicensed career, as you know, fighting uh, unlicensed boxing, and uh, yeah, I was uh, as good as I could have been. You know, I got into I, I had a I boxed as a kid, but I went back into me boxing in later life, as you know, and. Uh, Achieved what I could achieve. I achieved a, an unlicensed title, which a lot of people will poo-poo and say, yeah. but in my world, boxing's boxing. You know, I'm not sat, not claiming to have been a world champion or, you know, but, uh, you know, I Just I to get in I the ring, it's just to get in the rings, yeah, is, is enough sometimes. You know yourself, yeah. you're a fighting man yourself, Bill. You've been there. It's, 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 it's freeing, it's liberating, it's lovely. And I mm. don't view boxing as violence or... It's controlled aggression. It's a sport. It's uh, it's you're pitting your wits against someone else. It's like the ultimate game of chess. You know, it's a lonely place, the square ring, as you know. And and, and I love it. And and I love boxing. And I know what it does for people. And in my humble opinion, because we had it in schools, it taught us discipline and everything else when we was in school. I'd bring boxing back in schools. I really would. I think it's such I'd a bring great it, I'd bring it back into prisons, to be fair, as well. Well, we did box in prison. When yeah. we was young and I, and I spent a lot of time in young offenders institutions, we did box in the young offenders institutions. Yeah, it was great. I think, unfortunately, it's, um, it's, it's because it's a contact sport, you know, it inspires aggression. Mm. Um, you know, it, it kind of, but you know, for it, to, to be honest, it's it, it's it's about camaraderie, shape, and unity, and of you know, building relationships up. Yeah, with, with the people you seen, we seen, we went to a fight last night. You seen oh, what Incredible. People, people were battling in the ring, and then at the end of the, the, the fight, they were hugging each other and, and shaking hands and getting pitches. It was incredible. And that's, 
That's yeah. that's how it should be. Yeah, the combat fight series. You know what a show that was. That was absolutely fantastic down in um, South Croydon. That was Rory's show. Yeah, that was that was brilliant. That was a real privilege to go and watch that, and especially with you, Bill, and with uh, really enjoyed it. Was my good like friend Mark it. Epstein. It was fantastic. to see all the lads there and all the boys. Yeah. And, no, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant class. Yeah. Brilliant. So tell us a little bit about um, your life in between. Well, from from. From being in Woolwich to getting arrested in your first crimes, well, we, what went wrong? Well, like I say, Bill, we I, I I grew up in it was a hard area, you know, and I grew up around some fucking hard people. And don't say that for ego effect. There were some fucking hard people. I didn't consider myself one of them when I was young. I was quite frightened. Looking back, I was quite a nervous child. Quite found it hard to interact with people socially, or whatever else. So. The crime and criminality and drug use, it becomes like the great social adhesive, doesn't it, as it were? It sort of connects you all yeah. together. And I looked up to people, you know, our area was synonymous with armed robbery mm. back in the 80s. You know, we had the, the generation above us were used to rob security vans and major armed robbers, um, some big faces, people that if I mentioned their names, you'd know who they were, but um, it's not about them. We looked up to these people. And we were drawn in on the periphery. We wanted to be these people. You know, we were game, reckless, and stupid, really. And we used to do kamikaze robberies and whatever. A few good ones, a few bad ones. We've, again, no, no fault or regard for our victims. That's how selfish we were, but where we were emotionally at the time. And I became quite a prolific armed robber. And the police told me at one point there was this particular copper, we used to call him Action Man. Mm. He told us one day, we will shoot you. When we see you doing what you're doing, we will shoot you. And they knew we were active and we was always getting different bits of harassment off and whatever else because of the life we were living. And it came to a head when they actually shot dead two people from our area. Well, they shot three dead, but they shot two people dead that I knew quite well. And our other friend was robbing the security van. As he was running to the getaway car, bang, they shot him in the back. That tells you their intention. They were the execution squad. And they were brought out in the late 80s. And what that was designed to do was bring the armed robbery rate down to get the kamikaze, get the idiots out that were pushing the figures through the roof, idiots like myself. And it had that effect to a degree. We became a little bit more scared, but perhaps a little bit more organized in what we did. You know, but it had the desired effect. And so that's all, it, 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 it inspired fear. Oh, most definitely. We knew they weren't... Messing about. No, it's not yeah. a fucking game. It's not a game. And and any time you went out with that intention, you know, you knew. So when you were doing like these armed robberies, were you actually going out with, with was, you, was you packing? Yeah. Packing... Always. Pieces, yeah. Always. Not not always real guns, you know. We had we had we had uh, replicas and other times it would only be like say this three or four you run in somewhere one person would have one by the door or one person might threaten at the counter or whatever else. But a few times you had real ones. Sometimes uh, blank fire. That I mean, no one's going to stop and ask you if you're you. Be, it's like an art. And I don't want to. You know, there's someone wrote a great book once called The Art of the Robbery, and it's it's an art, Bill. As you know, it's not about how people that run in places like Captain Caveman and shouting and screaming or whatever, that doesn't install as much fear as people who look organised and composed. And if you walk into a counter, 
sometimes you don't even have to show anything. You just have to say, oh, I'm holding it, you know, and you get the right response. Mm. You know, you just become, you sort of hone your art, as it were. And we become quite efficient. So do you think, yeah. I don't know how, how, how you feel about this, mate, but do you think with you being desperate and the kamikazes packing a piece, going in, and there's, 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 there's a live one there, and they come on top, and it was bangers, and the plot were there, do you think you'd have been pulling that trigger? Or would you have just went? What I do know is this. From being, from spending quite a lot of time in high security prisons, like maximum security prisons, again, I don't say that for effect, but I was up in the dispersal system for quite a few years. And knowing and meeting a lot of people who have been in that situation, who never had that intention when they went to work that morning. Yeah. And they've ended up shooting and killing a police officer or killing a security guard. You can't say no, Bill, it could happen in that moment. You know, yeah. it's, you know, we're not trained soldiers. We're not trained marksmen, you know. Put a loaded firearm in the hands of a fool and he is not in control of that firearm. That firearm is in control of him and that's my experience. And having been someone who has held guns committing these acts, I will tell you now, it has, it's a funny feeling when you hold a loaded firearm and you're going out with the intention to use it to intimidate or or rob. You know, that gun is in control of you. Yeah, it's, just, it's a quite an in intimidating piece of work, though, isn't it, when you've got all or something like that as well? Most definitely. Yeah, yeah. Most definitely. Mean, it does, it does, like, it does have the effect. Well, and there's no, there's been, I mean, you think about it, and this is, this is the same for, I suppose, anyone who gets involved in firearms, and, and, I, and I hate guns, and I hate what they represent, first and foremost, today, but... You know, there was no ballistics expert to check to check the the, the validity of that weapon or to mm. check whether it would even fire correctly or when you go to pull the trigger, it doesn't blow up in your face. So, you, you know, you're, you're complete fucking idiots with these things, Bill. You know? Yeah, tell me about it, mate. I see, see, I am. Um, see, when I was in Thailand, it's, it's guns are all over the place in Thailand. So. You're buying them left, right and centre, the cheapest chips. You know, I was here... Uh, I was given this gun that I bought of this side box here, which was like a pipe, like a little yeah. tube. Yeah. Like with a spring, a little two two bullets in it. Yeah. Right. And they give me about half a dozen bullets. You pull it back. It had no you just let go of that. <laughs> you don't know where they go. You don't know where they go, but it's um I don't know. I never actually um used it. I bought it because it was like a novelty to me. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but I've had, I have, I have, had experience with holding a few guns, but I haven't felt good about it, you know. Well, we had them, yeah. like you're saying about them. We had them. We used to call them the Saturday Night Specials. They were little Derringer two-two pistols that took yeah. two shots, little small fold-up things. And what happened is we had some friends who was working. This is in the nineties. This was. We had some friends who were working in Germany at the time. And they were buying them out there for 50 quid. Again, they were like novelty guns, but a lethal weapon at close range. And uh, they used to bring them back inside putty in their toolboxes. They used to wrap them in putty and bring them back and sell them here for like 500 quid a shot with with food, with ammunition. And they was, there was loads of them around our area. And again, if you held it in your hand and you let it go, because I've done it before, all it used to do is burn your hand to smithereens. And if you, if you was aiming forward, if we'd done them in the woods playing around, the bullets would go anywhere. They would ricochet anyways. You know, mm. you know, you know we, 
idiots shouldn't hold guns. Yeah. Same way idiots shouldn't hold fucking knives. It's the, the same principle, Bill, for the kids that are running around with the knives. If you think you are in control of that knife, more the fool you. That knife is in control of you. You know? Yeah. It has a mind of its own. That's my experience. And like I say, having spent time in high security, the high security estates. What was your aim? So what was your experience in, in the, 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 you know, the dispersals? Because I know yeah. I've never actually spent any time in dispersals. I've been around the country myself. Well, after you've I... Got to, after you've got to reach a certain limit in a sentence, haven't you? To oh, get yeah. There? Well, I mean, I had quite a, you know, a hard time through my own doing because after the escape bill, I was a category A prisoner. Yeah. And that was because of the method I used. Standard. Not, not more that they would say... Not because I was this super gangster or threat to the world, like some a lot of cases. It's about national security or threat to the public. It wasn't about that. It was about the method I used. It was quite an extreme method, and I'm not proud of it. But if you're willing to take a hostage, especially a prison officer or something like that, I think, well, we need to monitor you closely. So what actually happened after that, Bill, is I got interviewed by a Home Office psychiatrist when I, after I'd escaped because of the extreme method I'd used to escape. And she put down on this, uh, what she actually said to me, she said, and it's in the opening paragraph of my book, I'll put it there. I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, uh, a man desperately seeking avenues of communication. And what I've learned with age and maturity is what that is. If I can't tell you how I feel, then I'll show you. And she said, all I was basically doing was acting out, but she did label me as, as, as uh, quite dangerous because of obviously the, the extreme methods and because of my past. And it's not just about the things you've been convicted of, Bill. I've been convicted for firearms, armed robbery, section 18, and a lot of petty things where else. So I have got a lot of fun, but it's the stuff that you don't get to see, the stuff that's really yeah, so, security Yeah, well, I understand that. There's like, there's contributing factors to, Most definitely. to somebody's uh, actions. What was what was going on in the background for you, right? No, there must have been something that's like said, right? You know, was you insecure? Did you feel quite vulnerable? Was you did did you, did you have to deal with rejection? What was was you, you had low self esteem? What was going on? I would say all of that, Bill. What you've just mentioned, yeah, low self esteem, but you don't know you've got it at because the time. you're not aware, are you? No, you no. don't even know what it is. You don't no. even know how to spell it. Well, to put, I mean, I, I I liken it like this: to put yourself in that mix and that way of life, and to pay the prices I paid. I mean, I paid some heavy prices during my sentences, like high security conditions, segregation. It's whatever else. It's like the ultimate form of self harm. You know, if someone likes and loves and values themselves, they wouldn't put themselves in that way of fucking life anyway. Because the criminal life is a dirty life, as you know, Bill. You are used, abused, and you use and abuse. But you believe you're in control. You're never in control. You are dealing with forces well beyond your control and that was my experience criminally and to answer your previous question bill where it took me is i was this frightened young child who loved little soft fluffy animals was scared of his own ghosts to being in a segregation unit in in it was called the uh, security care and control unit in long Larkin, in in basically a a, a, con, a controlled cell where there's no furniture no nothing in case you harm yourself or others because um, what had happened is they moved me for therapy from Long Larkin. Psychologist said I needed therapy and treatment, and they moved me to Dovegate. And while I was in Dovegate, I attacked two prisoners with a honey jar. I don't think I was well at the time, and mm. I was arrested for two Section 18s. Cut a long story short, back to Long Larkin, segregation in special care and control unit. 
Two psychiatrists come to interview me on the basis of the previous psychiatrist assessment. One of them tapped the pen on the side, Bill, and he said, a signature from me and a signature from him and you're off to Broadmoor. And I'll still be there, Bill. So look at that parallax. Forget everything in between. Young, frightened child that loves cuddly little animals. Forget everything in between to sitting in a high security prison at the end of the road. I've got Bob Maudsley, two cells away from me. I don't even, you, obviously you know Bob Maudsley is the Liverpool man who killed three people in prison. I've got Bob Maudsley, two cells away. Uh, a few of the other faces in segregation who ain't going nowhere. So in that cell, with two psychiatrists telling me I'm off to Broadmoor. That's how successful my criminal career was. And that's how successful my life was up until that point, you know. So it was like you're on a thin line. Well, I, I honestly believe if they'd have sent me to Broadmoor because of my behaviour and my violent outbursts, I'd still be there now. So you, you, you know, you suffer with mental health. Didn't know it at the time. Nah. I was diagnosed with a condition called bi bipolar disorder, which is, you know, I'm not at the extreme end, so I don't want to detract from anyone who suffers from bipolar nah. extreme end because it can be a really terrible mental illness, Bill. And I'm quite open and honest about it. For me. I believe it was always there from when I was a young kid and it manifested itself in anxiety, depression, uh, bouts of uh, semi-psychosis. I've never really lost touch with reality, but I would go into manic phases where I could be very volatile, yeah. very dangerous, you know. I could, I could, uh, dangerous people, as you know, Bill, you've been about long enough like I have. The most dangerous people in society are the people who contain their emotions well. They don't, Empty vessels make the most noise. I'm not one of these people who, who, when I was living that life, who would throw threats about, jump out of my prayer, and I'd do your whatever. I could go from being how I am now to bump attack, and it would be instant. It could be naught to murder. I'm not saying I murdered anyone, but naught to that murderous intent. I'd in, love to wait within like three that. seconds for that. that kind like of that. Yeah, and, like and unable to contain that. You know, it was it was like that for me. I could literally flare up like that, and yeah, it's crazy that that life that like you know we live, isn't it? Most definitely. But like I say, with drug abuse and things like that, if you're prone to any form of mental illness, and 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 the reason I'm so open and honest about it is it doesn't make you weak. In a lot of senses, it makes people amongst the strongest. The strongest people in society tend to suffer from some form of depression or something like that yeah. or whatever. They battle against it their whole you life. You've got to look at the likes of Tyson Fury, you well, know, the world champ. Well. He's, you know, and he's, he's open about his, his mental health and his, um, how he suffers. And he's, he's, he's an actual advocate for like someone who's, who's been there and, and fought back. Well, having spent, Bill, I've spent 30, I've, I've done 31 different prisons. And I know people say, well, how do you know that? Because when I wrote my book, I worked out how many prisons I'd been to. I've been to 31 different prisons. Now imagine how many people I've met along the years. I'm talking north, south, east, west. I've got friends up in, in Liverpool, beautiful people, friends in Manchester, Scotland, everywhere. So I've seen the full spectrum of crime, criminality, and those incarcerated. And the one thing that I do know is this, Bill. I would say, you know, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, well, I am an academic, but I'm not um, a psychiatrist. But I would say 
mental illness and some kind of personality disorder is rife throughout the prison system and rife throughout criminality. Mm. Rife throughout criminality. Takes your mental health, it goes out of the man sometimes, doesn't it? Most definitely. I remember the last time I met you, and it was um, it was 2010. Yep. I just got back from Thailand in the March of 2010. I had this culture shock. I was I went from, from Wandsworth Prison and I went straight to Bournemouth. Really what was worse, a Wandsworth prison or one of in oh, Thailand? Bosch. I'd say fucking Wandsworth. <laughs> Boscombe in Bournemouth, but there was no way. There was no, but I ended up, I remember, we, you know, we, um, I was, I ended up in hospital in, um, in Bournemouth and I was, I was in the grip. I was using, you know, I relapsed. Yeah, I couldn't cope with, with, with life you, on life change. You'd been through it. Yeah, I'd been through it. it. Um, didn't know where it belonged. I'd been off the country for a long time and, uh, and, I, and I was using to escape reality again, right? Because that was, no, if drugs was your answer, what was your question? Right, that's, most that, that's 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 yeah. that that was uh, what it was all about for me. I remember, you know, you talked about life. I was in a wheelchair. I was, it was that bad, mate. I was in a wheelchair. My leg was fucking. I was in a bad way. Um, but I was still getting out of that hospital, sneaking out and using. Desperate, and there was a time that I bumped into you in a crack den, wheeling yourself in, and the Somali kid pulled out a knife. He was a drug dealer, and 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 he started to threaten me with it because he, he he believed I was someone that I wasn't. I wasn't, yeah. Uh, I fucking shit myself. <laughs> I said, "What's the thing?" I thought, "What's going on here?" You know, and um, and I was looking into your eyes. I remember it, right? I was looking into your eyes, thinking, "Mate, if this goes off, I I hope you're in my corner here." Oh, I would have been. Yeah, I hope you're that. in my corner, and I was trying to convince this kid because he was a bit unpredictable. He was very volatile, and he was. Manic with him, and I thought he's only got to just plunge me, and I'm 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 defenseless because I'm shitting down. I can't even get up to to protect myself, and that was a frightening. This is this is the lifestyle that 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 comes with addiction, yeah. and the consequences is I was I was almost killed because yeah. he believed I was this other kid that had caused problems the day before, you know, and and he kind of understood. He got the message that it wasn't me. Yeah. But it was so, it was so, uh, this is, yeah, it, it, it was so well, frightening. And I told you the story that happened with him. He was actually shot dead six months later. Yeah. Yeah, he was well, shot tell dead. Tell us about, yeah, because you told me that last night. What, what happened? To, well, uh, What was his name again? Uh, they used to call him both. Both. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I period up there where I was involved in that world in the cocaine supply world. I'm not proud of it again. But he, he ended up uh, falling out of another firm from London. Some of a couple of his own, so these were county lines basically. Where back then, before it was known as all that, yeah. yeah it was, an, and, and what happened is uh, two fellas actually came up and blasted him with a shotgun yeah. and killed him. Yeah, I think the way he was behaving that was his lifestyle, that's his consequences, you know. Live, live by the sword, yeah. die by the sword, live by the gun, expect the gun, and that's yeah. the reality. And he I was did. quite capable, Bill. He was a nasty piece of work, yeah. He was, mate, yeah. you know. I, 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 I think. There was, there was a time and you know I had to go home and I thought you know this I can't go on like this but it's the experiences Bill that bring about change you know the wisest amongst us will say never deny someone their rock bottom and I know there may be people watching this podcast Bill who've got family members people they love people they care about who are in the yeah. grip of addiction or crime or criminality or whatever else you know 
And the natural instinct, and we believe it's love, is to try and soften the blow for these people, give them money or help them out or whatever. Sometimes the best thing you can do, and it's the toughest thing to do, yeah. is say, I'll be here when the time's right. Yeah. Because, and never deny yeah. them their rock bottom. Because change in any, it comes from within, Bill, as you know. It's, it's always making, there's too many people out there that are soft in that way. And you know, that, that are enabled by family members. But they're, yeah, they're not a fault. It's just no, they don't it, know no it, it's better. Just, it's just love. It's just yeah, love. they don't know my no mom, better. My mum, my mum is tough love, right? Everyone shut the door on me, you know. They, they, they blocked me on social media. Mm. My world became really small. I got really lonely with it as well. Yeah. And there was no else, there was there was no no place else to turn to. It's to a point where you just got to go, Do you know what? <sighs> Enough's enough. Most but if I'm getting is. if I'm getting hands out and I'm saying it up at my sister's and she's feeding me, then I'm going to an ex bed and she's like, give me a room and it's it, it's well what we it's do, a never ending pattern, isn't it? Well, it's like in you know when they call drug use, they say people drug use. People who are involved in drug use don't just use drugs; they use people, people yeah, places, and things, things yeah. And, you know, it's, it just becomes, and in amongst all that, BOS, you know, you get completely fucking lost. You don't know who you are. You have no identity. You just become completely fucking lost. It's quite a pitiful place to be. It's like almost Neanderthal. It reduces the greatest people to fucking cavemen. And I've been about in the recovery game enough to see this is not about intelligence or anything like that. I've, I know doctors, professors, all sorts of people who have suffered from addiction and yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't exclude anyone. This, oh, of course, it does. This illness does it, it's and I non-discriminatory. There's a, there's a lot of people that um, that watch this podcast who are, are are in the grip of it as well because they get the messages saying, you know, and I see it on the thread, Bill. You know, yep. shit, there's people telling me I'm shitting here, I'm smoking, and I'm crying, and and, and I'm watching this, and I want to stop. You know, can you give us a bit of guidance? And you know, what would you offer as guidance and support for someone who was reaching out for help? Where would you signpost them? For me, it's like because my my journey, I won't let my journey cloud my judgments when it comes to, to helping someone else. Because what's good for yeah. me is not good for them. Of course. And it's like years ago it was. It was like football teams, it was us against them. That yeah. team was better than that team. So don't go there, go here, because this is for you, right? This is the way it was for me back then, right? This is where you'll get well. You might get a little bit well there, but I believe they're on. So it was us and them. Now I've got to this point where look, look, it doesn't matter where you go, right? If it's good for you, it's good for you. You know, I, I, I'll meet you halfway. You yeah. Know? Well, first, first and foremost, what I would say, if you want to know where you're at in life, look at the company you keep. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. So they say, yeah, they new play, new playgrounds, new playmates. First and foremost, you have to have a look at your social circle and who you're in amongst because the illness, addiction, I think of it as an illness when people are, in, in, are truly in the grip. It's like they call, they say denial, don't they? Don't even know I am lying. Well, you don't. You, you don't know you're lying. You're lying to yourself. So first and foremost, there was all them acronyms back then. <laughs> but they but they mean so much, yeah. Bill. If you pull yourself out of the mix of the people you're associating with and you start to look at yourself, and I, and I would say don't detract from any of the professional services. And they're out there. You can pick up the phone. You can phone Frank. You can go to one of the 12-step meetings, which are totally free of charge, and meet people who have found that way out. It's 
it's something that you can't do alone. You can't just wheel your way out of it. It's the same with crime. I, I view crime as like a form of addiction in a nutshell, really. It's like when you talk of recovery from drugs or anything like that, that way of life, gambling, whatever your vice is, I think crime is exactly the same. And if you treat it the same, you can completely turn your life around, completely, you know. Takes hard work. You know, I'm not one of these people who would say, oh, it's easy to change. It's not, but fucking change is possible, Bill, because the proof is in the pudding and people like myself, yourself, and numerous other people I know who have made that transition, you know? Yeah, well, it's, and I think this is, um, it's important that we, you can have a platform that can offer uh, that hope and support. And this is why this is so great, because yeah. you can get that message out there, because the one thing that most people feel in the grips of criminality or drug addiction or anything else is they feel like they're alone, Bill. Like no one feels how I feel. No mm. one can relate to me. When you hear people speak openly and honest about it, and it's the same with mental health, the moment you know you've got someone to identify with, that is the best antidote to all diseased thinking. It's the best antidote yeah. because you can see... You can't, you know, you can be an academic. I'm not detracting from them people. People who have read this stuff and learnt this stuff in college. They do help people, but you can't identify with them sometimes. You need to be able to identify with and aspire to be something. We all need a role model of some kind. And someone who's been there is the best role model of all. You know, as long as they're genuine. As long as they're genuine. Yeah, and do you believe in, do you believe in honesty in all aspects? Of life. 100%. But that's a process, Bill, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I couldn't sit here and say I'm a spiritual giant and I don't make mistakes in life because I fucking do. But that's about being human. But as long as my mistakes are not as bad as they used to be, you know, I don't commit crime. I don't harm people. I don't associate with criminals today. Yeah. You know, I, I do things like this, give back freely with no thought of reward. I do it for two reasons, Bill. My own personal rehabilitation and to help others, and also to repay the debt to society for the harms I caused, and for the wonderful people that have helped me along my journey. Everyone's our teacher, and whether you believe in a God or a spiritual force or whatever, you know, I don't profess to be, to have the answers there, but what I will say is I yeah. do feel like there's a guiding light and some form of higher intelligence in the in, in the universe, that if you tap into and do the right things, you reap what you sow. Do, yeah. yeah, it's like Oscar Wilde said, isn't it? He says, you know, you, no one can give you humility. It's got to arrive from within. You know, and sincerity, you've got to be sincere and, and your motives have got to be clear. And, yep. and everything's got to be righteous because if you do things just to validate how you feel because you feel really insecure, so you're trying to find your self-esteem in other people. Yeah. Just throw your ego then, you know... You won't find it there. You'll never find it. And I always, never. I believe, I believe in this. And I believe, you know, it's good that I've, you know, I've had a lot of people on recently that can, um, that I can identify in that area, you know, because mm. we, we've got a bullshit razor, you know, 100%. that we just know, yeah, he's, he's, 100%. He, he, he's blagging it, you know, and I've known you for a long time, Ray, and I know uh, how sincere you are, um, how humble you can be. Bless you. You know, and, and, and you've made me feel really welcome. So, and it's nice to be around people like that who are positive. You are not. You're not there to say billiard. There's a little bit of a graft here. You know, talking up the side of the mouth. No. <laughs> you know, little no. bit sneaky. Get on this. It's it's. And this is the people that you should. You know, I, 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 you said it's like show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Mm. You know, 
bad company, corrupts good character. There's a lot of sayings. Yep. Fear, face yep. everything and recover. Yep. Or fear, fuck everything and run. There's, yep. you know, you, you denial. We, you know, I grew up in, in, in rehabilitations and, uh, and recovery communities, talking this kind of language. It was something that I'd never heard of. You know, I, I'm going back years, over 20 years nearly now. But the beautiful, I'll tell you one saying I love, Bill, and I know I speak a lot of cliches. None of it's my own. I'm not no, a spiritual yeah. guru. I just borrow it from other people and pass it on. Shame. He said, we, we all get given two lives. The second one begins when we realise we only get one. You know, so everybody, no matter how far down the scale you've gone, you have a second chance at life. You have a second chance at life. When you throw your hands up, surrender and go, my way's not working. You know, I'm having troubles with all my relationships. I can't hold down a job. I can't, yeah. All this stuff, whatever your reasons, you know, you can go, you know, I'm going to try something different here. I'm going to try something different here. And then you start to feel a connection to humanity and you start to understand that we are human we suffer from the human condition we are not perfect and i think it's the strive to be perfect and the strive to be right all the time that was killing me you mm. know once i could accept you know i'm not perfect i make faults you can sort of make some sort of sense of your past as well and it's mm. i don't hold guilt shame or i do remorse to a degree for the life i've lived and i lived a bad criminal life bill you know, I don't, you know. When was it, when was like the moments of change for you, Ray? Because there must well, have been a time when you've just sat there and you thought, look, this is enough's enough. You know, I can't go on the way I am. There's been a multitude, Bill. I think you come to your, I come to my senses when I realise this, this life business, it's not a fucking game. It's not a game. And I'm, I was getting older, prison officers were getting younger. My behaviours, I look at them and think, no, this is fucking desperate, going out doing fucking crazy things, robberies and whatever else. I, you know, this is fucking pathetic. In the grand scheme of things, Bill, it's pathetic. You know, what price can you give for your freedom? Anything can happen to you when you're free. Nelson Mandela said it beautiful. The greatest things in life may not appear to be free, but the greatest thing in life is being free. And that resonates with me so much, you know. Freedom is everything. It's painful being in uh, in 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 a prison again. It's like you keep making the same fucking mistakes, and you're in a prison cell, and you think, you know, I can't go out and see my family. I can't yeah. go out and meet people. I can't even go out and have something to eat if I want. You know, you're just a slave know. to a system, and, it, and, and it's, you've put yourself there. And yeah, and I've been in in them situations where I've been in a prison. And I've been called Billy. And then I've gone back and then I've been called Uncle Bill. <laughs> then I've gone back and then I've been called Pops. You know, and the screws are, you know, the screws are like kids. I know. You know, and it's not taking that away from them, like you said. They are really young. Some of them, and they're quite, um, they're quite vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, people get, they get targeted. I've done a few podcasts with a few um, prison officers who have... Well, the other one who's been, he's been to prison, he's been on the receiving end of him. Um... And do you know what, Bill, what I say about prison officers is this, you know, I've had my wars against them, like, uh, you know, I've experienced prison brutality when I was first started going to jail. Jails were a lot different than they are now. They were quite brutal places, you know. Yeah. You've got mouthy of a screw or you, you know, you could expect a fucking slap or they'd come in on you and give you an idea or whatever else. 
I've met the liberal ones, the ones that are okay. I've met some that are just in it for the job. And I'll tell you what, Bill, and I'll say this, I've met some fucking fantastic prison officers over the years that are really dedicated to trying to make a difference yeah. and, and help people change and whatever else. And whether you're ready to receive that help or not is, is, is down to the individual. You know, there's a lot of youngsters in prison that are on that same path we were. They've yet to reach that place. But there's some fucking fantastic, fantastic prison officers and they do a fucking horrible, difficult job. Would you want to do it? Yeah. I, I, I yeah. fucking wouldn't. So I, I, I've gone from being a prison officer hater, police hater, and all these things, which I was in your so-called criminality, they're all this, they're all that, to actually going, well, hang on a minute, they're, they're not all fucking bad. And even looking back when I used to get arrested by police all the time, where else they weren't all bad, Bill. They weren't all no, dogs, you know? It's, it's the same, really, Ray. Like, once you get this awareness and understanding, you've got to mm. take responsibility and be accountable for, for your actions. No one you know. ever come and grab me off the street and said, right, we're putting you in prison for something you haven't done. Yeah. <laughs> I did get arrested a few times, maybe things I'd, and, I mean, you know, it's par for the course, you know. Yeah. You, you got away with a few and you, you get, get yeah. and it's all, it evens itself out, doesn't it? It's but, you know, I can go, I could have gone to prison on one occasion. I'm, I'm fucking completely innocent of this one crime, but the 200 others I ain't been caught, you know, it, it weighs itself out. You know, no one ever come and it's the same with drug abuse. You can't blame anyone. No one grabbed me and stuck cocaine up my nose. My mate who's a, who's a, convicted of a big drug case a few, few years back. And he went to me, he, he said to the judge in his trial, he went, I never sold drugs to anyone who didn't want to buy them. <laughs> and, what, and I get that, because what he's basically saying is people like myself that who use them, you know, he didn't come to my house and go, here's free fucking cocaine. You know, I went out and actively yeah. sought that stuff. You have to take ownership, yeah. don't you? you there was never, you know, there was never anyone hanging around my school when I was a kid offering free drugs. You know what, it's fucking the media narrative, isn't it? The Sun newspaper, what they do is around schools and get kids fucking up what an absolute load of yeah, fucking no one gave me it's just fucking uh, these uh, lunatic fucking people that grew up in the villages and went to university believed that fucking narrative and put it in the papers yeah. you know there's too many people in society today in my humble view that are casualties of the fucking media they talk and, and, absolute and, and, and shit you, in a lot know, of areas how yeah. are you supposed to actually believe that someone is loitering outside school it's fucking ridiculous isn't it giving kids drugs for nothing yeah Open, where, where kids as young as 11, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> he don't even graft. Kids as young as 11. It's fucking this media narrative, scaremongering, moral panics. No different than the mods and the rockers of the 60s. They have to have a moral panic, those in the upper epilogues and epilogues in society, to justify their social standing, to yeah. make themselves appear the superior. You know, I call them the over-educated, under-fucking-intelligent. You know, you can't install common sense on anyone, don't matter how, how fucking clever you are, you cannot install common sense. In so people. 31 prisons, right? 31, yeah. 31 different prisons, right? How many years in total? Well, I worked it out, Bill, between uh, somewhere about 16 and a half years to 17 years. You know, a great fucking criminal career, you know. I served a 13-year sentence, a five-year, nine sentence, a five. And, and a lot of that, you know, that's a, a lot of fucking years. You know, I'm only just coming up to 50 now. That's a lot, a big chunk of my life behind bars. So I don't profess to be this highly organized fucking criminal or, or whatever else. You know, I was, I was, I, I did have a superpower, Bill. I was very good at getting arrested. Mm. You know, I was very good at getting caught and fucking arrested. You know, I'd have periods, of course, where I, 
I had quite a successful run or whatever else and stuff I was involved in. But I look back on the whole criminal career bill as being just a fucking waste. Mm. Because what I've achieved today from not living that life is far superior than what I ever achieved fucking criminally, you know. Like yeah. I say, I'm I'm an author with Virgin. You know, I've published my book, Outlaw, which is re-released with some edits in the spring. I've wrote Smuggler's Roulette. I'm a successful businessman, Bill. I run a and own a, a scaffold company that I've built up from scratch. I employ people, I pay my taxes, I've got a beautiful partner, I've got my own home, you know. All these things which were and you're not looking well over your shoulder. Yeah. I'm not looking over my shoulder. And these yeah. things were so far out of reach when I was in that life. And let me tell you something about crime and criminality now, Bill. Everyone cries for that big touch, don't they? I'll go out and I'll get a million pound, two million pound. Let me tell you something. The proceeds of Crime Act and Poker, they will take the fucking lot off you one day. And I've watched it happen. Seeing it, yeah. I watched it happen. And that's been a fucking game changer, Bill, as well, in a lot of areas. We know we've experienced that crime, criminality, and that way of life. It's a very fucking murky world. It's like fucking politics. People will sell you out to save their skin. Mm. And if people have got millions of pounds, I'm not wronging anyone off really, but I'm not a stupid man, and, I'm not, and the people watching this podcast won't be stupid. Someone's got millions of pounds, and the police go to them. We're going to take everything unless you help us. What do you think they're going to do? What do you think they're going to do? What do you, f and, and, and in some senses, when you see some people who are very successful criminal and they've got millions of pounds, why do you think they fucking got it? How do you think they can operate with total impunity? Come on. You know, use your head. And, you know, I'm not naive. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, there's, you know, it's, there's a few of us that have, over the years, that have, like, you know, we've learned Jay. Who's, who's up here in, in Romford. Beautiful man, Jay. Good friend Jason of mine. Jason Raven. Big yeah. shout out. He's, um, good man, Jay. Yeah, he's, he's been both of my books. He's um, He's been a good friend over the years. And he's had his demons just like ourselves. Yeah. And he's, yeah. he's he's now a successful businessman. And, you know, I'll have him on here. Look at on you, a podcast. Bill. Look at you, what you've achieved. You know, from what you went through in Thailand, and we all know because of the film, before Dawn, what you went through. And I know from knowing you personally what you went through. And I'm sure there's plenty of stuff in there you didn't divulge, but and to be doing your podcast, which is fucking fantastic. And I know your reasons for doing this, Bill, and I know your reasons for doing this is not about monetary gain. It's not about ego. It's not about wanting to be a name. It's about getting your message out and the variety of guests that you're having. I mean, what a fucking wonderful platform. What a wonderful turnaround. Rehabilitation in any area is something that you have to engage in. You cannot just think your way out of whatever. Einstein said it beautifully. You cannot think your way out of life's problems with the same mind that you used to create them with in the first place. <laughs> like That's that. another wonderful yeah. saying I like. You have to actively engage. If you want to change something, yeah. you have to take some form of action. It's, you know, it's like if you want to rehabilitate yourself, then you have to try and rehabilitate others and try and carry your message, you know. Brilliant. Like I say, shoot the, shoot the messenger. No, I don't give a fuck. Brilliant. But you cannot shoot the message. If it's pure, honest and open, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. And we do see it at times, you know. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. I really enjoyed it, Ray. Where can we get your book? Well, this is the wonderful thing. <laughs> Beautiful Virgin. You know, fantastic. And, you know, I've had so much support from Virgin because anyone who doesn't know... What actually happened is when I actually wrote my autobiography initially in 2014, I had a, I, I had a bit of a, 
a breakdown, like I went a bit off my head and I actually got arrested for uh, one arm robbery, one firearm charge, one attempted robbery. I was staring down the barrel of life sentence, like they, they're never going to release me now. What saved me, well, I believe a higher power saved me, but what really saved me, Bill, was a, a psychiatrist that, uh, again, because of the nature of my offence and everything, they, a psychiatrist come to interview me for a pre-sentence report. I pleaded guilty straight away. They said I was suffering from a bipolar episode. Episode, And what had happened is I'd gone to ask for help before I offended. I'd gone to ask for help and uh, there was no help available at the time. They, they didn't take me seriously, so I acted out. Again, remember, if I can't tell you, I'll show you. So I got arrested them offences. I was staring down the barrel of see you later with my offending history. Anyway, psychiatrist done this... Uh, uh, report and and whatever else, and it was it was historical some of the offences and uh, the judge said said um he threw me a lifeline basically. I actually wrote him a letter and said, look, I lost my way. If you throw the key away here, you know I believe in my heart I can go on to be a productive member of society. I'd had enough. I think that was that moment, Bill, when I wanted to change. And uh, he gave me what's called a 5 EPP, which is a five-year sentence with extended public protection. I was very, very fortunate to get what I'd done. So when I was released from that sentence, I had to go into a hostel to be monitored in society. And it was cut a long story short. I think that was the greatest catalyst to change for me because I realised, yeah. you know, that, that, that if I don't take this seriously and I don't take my, my mental health, my personal well-being, my spiritual development, and my rehabilitation seriously, then the, then then I will always regress back to type. And since I made that decision in 2014, I've never I've never had a drink, I've never took a drug, you know. I've gone on to do great things and have a life worth living, you know. I think if you work hard and build a life worth living, Bill, you're less likely to fucking smash it to pieces yeah. and sabotage it, which is what we do. And I'm in a place in myself emotionally, physically, spiritually, where I don't want to do that. And like I say, Virgin have supported me fantastically. Brilliant. And they've said, uh, we're going to re-release your book because they always believed it could be a bestseller, my story, because of the gripping nature, but also because of the message that it contains. And that means everything to me. There's a great message in my book of hope. So it's being re-released spring next year, entitled Outlaw. And you can get it on Amazon. Will you'll be able to get it pretty much everywhere. Waterstones, uh, Amazon, Waterstones, uh, probably Asda, and uh, Tesco's. Uh, I'm going to see if we can get it on a like babe station or somewhere like for those who are akin to that sort of stuff. <laughs> joking, but uh, yeah. So, any pearls of wisdom for the? What would you say to a young Ray Bishop walking through the doors of life? Avoid women. I'm joking. <laughs> what would I say? Search within, search within, be honest with yourselves. That's all this game requires, you know. I know anyone who's in that life is suffering. How much they're honest about that is another thing. You know, right from the, the kid that feels like he has to carry a knife today because of, because of our society is and because of the fear he's got. And you are suffering, you are suffering, you know. Be honest, be open, reach out, but above all, learn to listen. Learn to listen. And your teachers are everywhere. They're everywhere, Bill. We just have to be 
be ready to be taught. Thank you. And with that, nice one, Greg. Bill, pleasure. Pleasure. Honour.